Peter Burrell is a native Floridian and a senior environmental scientist with the Marine Research and Consulting Group based in Melbourne, Florida. Growing up along the Indian River Lagoon system, Peter developed a passion and an understanding for Florida's aquatic ecosystems. His early experiences fishing and hunting inspired him toward a PhD in environmental sciences from Florida Tech University. Soon after, he completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institution. This was in Fort Pierce, Florida. Following his formal education, Peter went on to become a renowned science and public policy advisor to Florida's local and state governments. These were on issues related to mitigation of land-based sources of pollution. In 1993, he was awarded the NOAA's NAS Marine Science Policy Fellowship to develop regional, national, and international coastal and ocean policy for federal agencies in Washington, D.C. This included groundbreaking work on the role of human-derived nutrient pollution, including human wastewater. Dr. Burrell has written over two dozen peer-reviewed scientific research articles, reports and other periodicals in addition to receiving grants and awards from the state of Florida, the U.S. EPA, NOAA, and NASA. Peter is also a past member of the Florida State Senate Task Force on Urban Fertilizer and Use of Experts on Harmful Role of Photoaquatic Systems. I wanted to get the most qualified person in the world on this topic in here and on the podcast before I made these acquisitions. In my opinion, it's a waste of time for the CCA to be conducting an oyster project here in the city of Fort Lauderdale. We know that the water is too polluted. It's common sense that you can't grow oysters in polluted water. And I just feel that if the CCA is going to have their own branch here in Broward County, that they ought to focus and make the problems that we have here a priority. We need help educating people and uniting people for the fight for clean water, not feel-good oyster projects that scientifically can't work no matter what you do. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope you learned something. Don't mean to make any enemies, but I do believe that we have to focus if we're going to win the fight for clean water. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is The Real Guy Podcast. Dr. Briel, thanks so much for being on The Real Guy Podcast. So I guess you're an old Florida boy, aren't you? That's correct. I grew up along the Indian River Lagoon uh, since I was younger. Um, a really great place, as you know, for fishing. Um, had av- uh, very strong recreational and commercial fisheries when I was younger. Um, in addition to having some of the best sea trout uh, in Florida. Uh, we also had very historically important oyster and clam fisheries here. In fact, if you go around uh, many places on the coast of Florida, you see these large historic shell middens. And right. what we know about them going back thousands of years, there are experts uh, who have looked at and done cores and, and excavations on these shell middens. But we see over time uh, layers of oysters and then clams and oysters and one of the clues behind that is over time with natural climatic cycling is that we had wet periods in florida and then very dry periods and those conditions over decades selected for our coastal environments around the state to have very prolific oyster populations and then uh, later on in different times uh, we had hard clam mercenaria uh, population. That's what, that's, that's what I uh, remember as a kid. We would go up there um, just north of Sebastian Inlet on these mud flats and we'd get in the water and uh, feel around with our feet and we'd pull up clams, just as many as you could possibly freaking imagine and uh, fill up a five gallon bucket or so and then get back in the car and drive all the way back here to Fort Lauderdale. Um, do they still do that up there at all? Well, you're pointing to a time when the Indian River Lagoon was especially productive. And I'm sure that you and I are close enough in age that that is actually where I grew up right in that area. So to bring my story about the past to present, um, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, the Indian River Lagoon had one of the most world-famous oyster populations in the world. The Indian River oysters were gigantic. They were uh, six to nine inches. 
um, the local said you actually had to cut the oyster meat in three pieces because it was so big. I remember them when I was younger, very large oyster shells, uh, very meaty uh, oyster, uh, you know, shellfish to eat on, a, on the, the half shell or, or cooked. But then we got into a, a changing climatic period in the early 80s. And very interestingly, the period that you're pointing out to, we actually saw as population increased, uh, there were diseases in the Chesapeake Bay that were impacting oysters. Uh, so we started having some of those problems here. With population growth, you have uh, sewage pollution, fecal bacteria, um, and then you see proliferation of diseases like dermo and MSX. We started getting those same diseases here in Florida, on the east coast of Florida. So as our oyster uh, fishery and population was on the decline in the late 70s, we we saw the beginnings of very strong El Nino events. And that were, as we know, are the very strong uh, rainy winter seasons and rainy years. So very interestingly, we probably changed the food web of, of the Indian Rebel Lagoon and such that we created conditions that were no longer very good for uh, the oyster, but much better for the hard clam. And so the period that you just mentioned about uh, coming up to Sebastian and Grant and Melbourne uh, in the 80s was a time we had probably the most prolific hard clam mercenary of fishery along the eastern seaboard of the United States. And anybody who uh, was in Brevard or Indian River County in the 1980s remembers the large influx of commercial fishermen from the Northeast. We had historic clam fisheries in Long Island Sound, um, Massachusetts. Many of those fishermen came down in the 80s and fished for what was a very prolific hard clam fishery here. It was so impressive. Um, as you said, Jeff, you could come up all the way from South Florida and in a half an hour fill a bucket, five-gallon bucket with really nice clams and then head home. Um, the fishery was such that um, those of us that were younger, um, we could fish for hard clams and uh, you know make a good living uh, – doing that as a young person. Um, but also there was very prolific fin fish fisheries. Everything was on a boom then. And I want to make the comment that looking at that period of time in the 80s compared to now, the Indian Rebel Lagoon was on a enrichment phase, meaning that we were having not only more people moving in, into the area, but it was getting nutrient enriched. But the slight amount of nutrient enrichment was producing what we call higher productivity in the system. We had more healthy phytoplankton. Our seagrasses were still very good then. We created the phytoplankton base for very large populations of shellfish then. And I'll just bookmark the end of your point here about the clams around Sebastian and Grant. Um, by the late 90s, our population, we went through a huge boom in the 80s here. Um, our water quality started decreasing. We were losing seagrass beds. And by the mid to late 90s, not only were our seagrasses gone, but our historic shellfisheries were gone also. Now, there was a general opinion that the shellfish went away because solely due to overfishing, that there were just too many people coming and taking the clams. However, these this hard clam fishery that initiated in the southern or the central lagoon around Sebastian just kept resetting. And for probably two decades with intense fishing, right. the fishery just kept recruiting. We kept getting clam booms all the way up and down the lagoon uh, into Melbourne, Cocoa, Titusville, and then up into the Mesquite Lagoon where there still are some hard clams in this time. But what we saw, and I think a lot of the scientists agreed at that point, was that the lagoon was dying. Right. And we lost the bottom habitat in terms of its ability to have enough oxygen. When we lost the seagrasses, we had big seaweed blooms. These not only killed the seagrasses, but they, they covered the bottom where we would have our shell fisheries recruiting and having new stocks of hard clams. Right, right. Yeah, that makes... Uh Chronologically, it makes uh, perfect sense. Now, did you were you paying attention to this stuff? Um, you know, as a teenager, as you were growing up, or was this something that came to you later? Because 
in my notes, I wrote down that <clears throat> in 1993, um, what was that, a NOAA's Marine Science Policy Fellowship Award or something like that? I mean, That's 1993 is a long time ago. What exactly was that all about? And where were you in that stage of the game? So in the early 90s, I had finished a master's degree. In fact, I had studied in the Florida Keys looking at Queen Conch and where were the best habitats for Queen Conch to grow. Uh, I actually did some conch aquaculture in the Keys because ironically about the same time we had lost the Queen Conch fishery in the Florida Keys. Same type of problems that we had in the Indian River Lagoon where you had excess algal growth there. We had low dissolved oxygen in the Keys and it turns out that the only good reproductive area for conch in the Keys were on the outer reef areas where the water quality was the best. But jumping to 1993, I had finished quite a bit of research in Florida and um, was awarded an opportunity for young scientists to go have experience in Washington, D.C. on a marine policy fellowship. And that was a great opportunity for scientists to get uh, literally their feet on the ground in both the executive branch uh, and um, in Congress with science policy. And I had the opportunity to work between uh, NOAA, the National Science Foundation, EPA, and the State Department on the contemporary science and ocean science issues, in particular uh, issues of the time. And it was very exciting. In fact, one of the great um, things that happened at that time, and that was during the Clinton-Gore years, Mm -hmm. uh, was the initiation of initiatives, I'm sorry, on marine biodiversity, coral reefs, and also on harmful algal blooms. So those three areas that were becoming very important in science policy um, as a scientist to get exposure to them was very critical. And it was a very important time for me because these are, we were at a crux, as you know, uh, as a fisherman, uh, things were starting to change in Florida. Uh, we, we didn't have the habitat that we had previously in the 80s and early 90s. And by the late 90s, we knew that a lot of our coastal estuaries were in trouble. We saw the, you know, the, the symptoms of algal blooms overtaking seagrass beds. Um, and with, with respect to those initiatives, we had die-off of our coral reef tract in the Florida Keys. By the late 90s, they were being overgrown with diseases and algal blooms, but also um, we were experiencing, the scientific community realized, a marine biodiversity crash in our coastal environments that were, was directly related to overpopulation, um, pollution, algal blooms, and loss of habitat. So all these topics that were becoming contemporary issues in the policy world in the early 1990s, by the late 1990s, we knew that they were all cascading and leading to what we have now, and that is uh, widespread loss of our ecosystem services right. from our coastal estuaries. The problem that you have in Fort Lauderdale with mass, massive infrastructure failure and sewage dumping is a really tough story that's being told and experienced not only around the state of Florida, but around coastlines and the rest of the United States, if not the rest of the world. Right. We have other estuaries and coastal waters uh, in the United States and Florida that have been severely impacted by continuous dumping of wastewater. Um, and also places like the Florida Keys, where chronic input of sewage nutrients from an estimated 26,000 septic tanks from Key Largo uh, to the lower Keys have been implicated as a primary driver in the demise of the third largest coral reef on the planet. And that's the Florida Keys Reef Tract. So not far away from you, Jeff, you have problems in Biscayne Bay with sewage dumping, uh, a sewage problem in the Florida Keys, and also to the north of you in the Indian Rum Lagoon. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, your problem there in Fort Lauderdale uh, is very symptomatic of other problems not too far away along the coast of Florida that they literally had a billion-dollar sewage infrastructure problem in Fort Lauderdale that needed to be fixed. And just as we see with a lot of bureaucracies, the problem 
got kicked down the road. And right. it was in the lap there of the, the new mayor who all of a sudden, uh, you know, had to deal with a serious issue. So I think the, you know, the hope is here that um, through engineering studies and the information that is available, that the administration of Fort Lauderdale knows that they have got to fix this. Um, there's been a lot of pressure from Tallahassee and the Florida DEP and the governor. They've been fined. And they know that they must move rapidly to mitigate a very serious problem with their wastewater collection system and treatment of wastewater in Fort Lauderdale. Right. And they, and they did um, respond immediately as far as the infrastructure went. I mean, the town's been under crazy construction ever since. I wish I knew a little bit more about the companies that do infrastructure and progress of these types of things. But what I can tell you is – the um, they are fixing the infrastructure. It's a pain in the ass. There's a lot of traffic. A lot of people are grumpy around here, but they are doing that. Um, and since they started doing that, I really have been sitting back and really not saying much to the leadership here. And after you and um, Terry came to visit, my question to you guys is what, you know, what, what should I do? And you told me to make a relationship with our local leadership, which I went way out of my way to do. And I think that um, going forward, considering Dean just won the um, election again, it was probably the smartest thing to do. And I think Dean, when he does get the sewage, at least under control, because it's not under control yet, it's still going into the waterways. There's a lot of leakage and stuff while they're doing the construction. And I understand it's going to take a while for it to get better. But when it does, I want to start putting pressure on the local um, leaders to rehab the place and promote wildlife. And I want to see the oysters grow back and I want to see mangroves start to grow back. And I think if we can start to see that grow back, then that'll kind of get the ball rolling for the rest of the ecosystem. But when we did the protest and we did everything, our big thing was we wanted to hold the city um, to two things. We wanted them to take water as a priority from this point on. And then we wanted to sit back and make sure that they were held accountable for whatever they did. And soon after that, the, one of the foundations out there came in here and decided to do a oyster restoration project. And I took a good look at what they were doing, and I was just kind of thinking to myself, well, from the priority standpoint, I really don't see the, the reason, you know, there's no real priority there. Okay, oyster project, oyster restoration, okay, good, but probably we ought to fix the water first. What type of accountability is this going to take? They're going to do this oyster project and then what? Like, is it going to be held accountable for what? Fixing the waterways. And I really didn't understand why this nonprofit and foundation would spend their time and energy doing a oyster restoration project here in Fort Lauderdale. Can you enlighten us on that? Why you think they would do that and the chances of that actually helping anything? We see in a lot of very acutely polluted coastal ecosystems that have a lot of sewage pollution, a temptation to jump right at habitat restoration. For example, uh, you know, after sewage dumping, you know, we, we want to make things better. We want to get new seagrasses. We want to have, you know, waters teeming with fish. So we, we often want to, go for the quick fix and try to restock organisms. Unfortunately, as you're intimating here before, the water quality problems have been dealt with. And the drawbacks to that are this. It's very critical to stop the dumping for a couple reasons. Number one, you have excessive loads of nitrogen and phosphorus. Those will continue to cause toxic phytoplankton blooms, they will cause excessive organic matter accumulations that will cause 
bacteria blooms. They will reduce oxygen levels in the water column and on the bottom. And lastly, you're putting a lot of pathogens into the system. So it's probably not even smart to be anywhere near that water. So if us as humans shouldn't be in the water, then we probably couldn't expect that under the conditions of excess algal blooms, low dissolved oxygen, and human fecal pathogens all over the place, that we could expect oysters to live in those conditions. In fact, they generally don't. Right. Uh, what we see in places like the Indian Rubble Lagoon, as I described earlier, where we had one of the most important oyster populations and oyster fisheries in the United States and saw it by the early 1980s almost to decline to nothing because of the pollution levels that we had in the 80s at the excessive nutrient and uh, fecal indicator bacteria that we have in the system now, where we literally have uh, what a fisherman called uh, and told me yesterday, moonscapes and dead zones all over the place with no oxygen, no seagrasses. How can we expect to just magically uh, put shellfish down and expect them to survive? So I think the issue is, uh, back to your original question, is uh, what should we be doing and when should we be doing it? So to summarize, I would suggest uh, to you and the people in your community that you want to be active with your leadership and with your environmental agencies to do what has to be done to stop the sewage pollution first and do this and start seeing some improvements in water quality before you can expect to supercharge the system uh, into health again by adding what may have been and formerly uh, components uh, of, of a healthier ecosystem like seagrass and oysters that really aren't going to come back until you see improvements in water quality. So again, number one, fix your water quality before you try any gimmicks or go out of your way with just the sole intention of making people feel good. Uh, because in the end, you can't expect these restorations to be successful until you are far down the road with improving water quality. Right. And you mentioned feel good. And I actually had that on my list of things to talk to you about because I referred to this oyster restoration project um, here in Fort Lauderdale as a feel good story. Okay. I didn't uh, discourage anybody to participate. I actually encouraged people to participate. And I said, Hey, you know, it can't be, can't hurt anything. But I kind of explained it to people that it was, more of a feel-good story. And I do get the point that getting people involved and to pay attention will help educate them, which I thought was, you know, legitimate. Um, But the organization got pretty upset with me about calling it just a feel-good story. And they went on and got a lot of really good press that made them look like they were actually doing a lot. And Scientifically, no matter what they did, there's no way that this oyster restoration program could be successful. And and then they wanted to fall back on data collection. And my thought to that was people like you since 1993 have been collecting the data. We don't need more data. (laughs) We know that there's a level where these oysters will not grow, but still, And they're going on like eight, nine months now. So they have a full-time president of the chapter here spending six, seven months deploying over 100 uh, oyster traps to try to what? I don't get the end result. And the only thing I see happening is them getting some decent PR, which kind of irritates me. And I just want people to know what is actually happening. We know that there's nothing happening from the city as far as restoration goes yet, which I do believe it's too, um, we're just at, you know, too, too, we're too immature for that right now. When the water cleans up, then we can restore it. But this whole thing going back and forth with all this time and energy from one of the foundations that is supposed to be looking out for us that we've given a lot of money to. It is nothing but a feel-good project. And then how could they not understand that? And what would be their motive 
except for what? Getting donations? I don't get it, and it irritates me. Have you seen this go on in other areas over and over again? Is it something new, or is it the same old song and dance? Well, Jeff, we can look to other ecosystems that have had successful restorations of, of coastal waters and estuaries. And let's list a couple examples here. Tampa Bay and Sarasota Bay. Tampa Bay was so polluted in the late 1970s that there was actually a special on 60 Minutes that was highlighting the algal bloom problem and the loss of seagrasses and just slimy algae all over the place. Ironically, in the early 1980s, they did the right thing. And they spent literally at that time hundreds of millions of dollars, which now equates to billions of dollars, to literally stop the sewage dumping into Tampa Bay. Uh, they retrofitted uh, many wastewater plants to what we call advanced wastewater treatment and made significant investments um, in their collection systems and stopped the sewage dumping into Lagoon and into. Tampa Bay, they reduced the nitrogen loading by 60% by stopping the sewage. And very interestingly, once that happened, the seagrasses and the shellfish, in their case, they've had scallop fisheries recover, they largely recovered on their own. So this is an example where if you spend the energy correctly, and in all fairness, the average person on, on Saturday does not want to have to go to a meeting to encourage their local uh, city council to invest money uh, as their engineers have told them and fix sewage problems. They'd rather be going out on a boat, using their hands and, and putting an oyster bag in the water. But in all fairness, the hard work is what it takes to restore coastal estuaries. And if we look at the best examples, places like Tampa Bay and Sarasota Bay, it was the hard work and the heavy lifting of paying the money and stopping the nutrient loads that actually led to seagrasses and shell fisheries to come back literally on their own. For example, in Tampa Bay and Sarasota Bay, after significant nitrogen reductions from stopping the sewage dumping, the seagrasses have come back in both of those systems. They've come back to an unbelievable level that exceeds 1950s seagrass coverage levels. Wow. They are seeing scallop fisheries over there that no one has ever recalled in decades and decades of uh, people living in, in those areas. So um, this is a testament to uh, putting the money in the right place, spending the energy and the limited resources that we have on the right things. And again, if you stop the pollution, uh, the oysters and the seagrasses will likely come back on their own. Right. So the priority, the priority for us here in Broward County is to stop the pollution first. Then we'll worry about all the rest of the crap. All right. It makes me feel a little bit better because I was starting to feel like I was a little too harsh and that I wasn't being open-minded enough and being a little too, I don't know, I've, you know, over the years I, I say what I feel and um, sometimes that pisses people off. Sometimes it's legit. Sometimes it's my fault. Um, but I don't know. I'm just glad to have somebody like you on here that can knows a heck of a lot more, has been at it for a lot longer, and I can get some um, some real some real answers from. Now, the American Water Security Project. I kind of wanted to move on um, to that and get away from issues that we're having with this oyster project. I learned about the American Water Security Project because of the problems we had here. I knew about some of these other um, foundations and some of the work that people have done, but I didn't realize um, who was actually doing what. And since the big sewage spill here, I've been a huge fan of the American Water Security Project. You guys stay on point. You guys are relentless. You never stop. And it could be here in Fort Lauderdale. It could be in the Keys. It could be in the Carolinas. It could be in the mountains somewhere. If people are dumping shit into estuaries, the American Water Security Project seems to stay on point, stay focused, and go after those types of issues. Um, talk to me about that. Why do you 
well, why don't others stay focused like the American Water Security Project does? I, I read these mission statements from from other people, and I and I kind of get lost. I read the one from American Security Water, the American Water Security Project, and I get it, um, and I get it a hundred percent. Well, let me say first of all, and I appreciate the compliments, Jeff. That dealing with pollution is a tough thing to do uh, because ultimately the problem comes back to all of us. Um, if you think about Fort Lauderdale a hundred years ago, and I certainly wasn't live then, but my family was certainly in South Florida and in Hollywood, Dania Beach and Fort Lauderdale 50 years ago. And uh, my uncle uh, told me stories about swimming uh, right off the beach uh, where the reefs were actually very healthy. There were seagrasses and conch right off the beach and Fort Lauderdale and Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So that the, and we all have family like yourself that's been around. Uh, if you've grown up in the, in South Florida, that has similar stories. They can tell you about how clear the water was, that there were corals living within the intercoastal waterway, all these great stories. But the lesson is that we love South Florida to death. And when the hundreds of thousands of people turn into millions of people in South Florida, um, and we all like to live right on the waterway, whether we're on the Barrier Island or uh, right near the intercoastal waterway, um, our pollutants have overtaken uh, the sustainability of these systems. They can only assimilate so much nutrient load before we have cascading negative impacts on habitat. So the things that we loved about the intercoastal, uh, you know, seeing seagrasses and conch and some corals around, uh, all these great things, the beautiful inlets that are full of fish, over time, we have degraded uh, the water quality and the habitat. So I think everyone has a story, Jeff. I, you know, I've just shared mine, um, and you could probably share yours in length. Um, but everyone knows we all have a, a baseline of what we knew was healthy and we look at it now and we know we're no longer there. And the question is, you know, what can we do to turn it around? But as you know, and your encounters and dealing with Fort Lauderdale, that we have very large institutional bureaucracies now, whether it is the city of Fort Lauderdale or whether it is the Florida DEP mm-hmm. that regulates, um, domestic wastewater treatment in the state of Florida. There are tens of millions of dollars spent every year just to operate these systems, let alone make investments in improving them. So think about the population increases over time. We have asked 50-year-old wastewater treatment systems that, by the way, many of the pipes dump a mile off the beach from Miami uh, all the way to Palm Beach County. Uh, so for 50 years, we've been dumping uh, nearly uh, half a billion gallons of sewage a day about a mile off the beach. Okay. Right. So that problem, we are trying to get a handle on and put an end to that. But at the same time, the increasing population has put a stress on the wastewater treatment facilities on land to the point where the collection systems are breaking. And that's what you're experiencing directly with your forest main failures in Fort Lauderdale. Right. Uh, we have leaking lines. Some of them are, are 40, 50 years old. They're made of cast iron. They have no bottom on them anymore. They're leaking sewage out. When the tide comes up, there's water coming in. You have a big storm event. And most of the volume going into our wastewater plant now in places like Fort Lauderdale is actually storm water. So right. water that's either coming up through tidal action or through storms uh, when we have flooding events, these facilities cannot even treat wastewater efficiently anymore because their systems are so dilapidated. Right. So we now, as any of us that have seen South Florida in the past and know what it is now, we realize that we are way behind, whether it's fixing roads, um, you know, improving uh, services for humans, whatever it is, uh, we're way behind um, in treating our infrastructure in South Florida. An example is in Fort Lauderdale, for at least 10 years, the city has known that they have about a billion dollars in wastewater infrastructure facilities that need to be upgraded. And every year that you don't deal with that, you are putting 
uh, the city and the people of the city uh, in danger of events like you've had in the past year and a half, and that is blowing out force mains. Right. The city of Fort Lauderdale knew that those force mains were going to blow. Right. They knew that they needed to be replaced. Right. So this is, again, an example of uh, a bureaucracy that you know has a lot of needs. Um, our taxes are relatively low here. But by the same token, they would have uh, – they would rather spend money on other things. I would imagine that it's going to be a couple of years. Where we're going just to have to live with the traffic and the pollution and the sewage getting dumped into the water. Um, I was fortunate enough to get the, the mayor out on the boat with me um, right before the COVID thing happened. And I reached out to him under your guys' advice to develop a relationship with the guy. And I brought him out on the boat. And I was hoping that if I brought him out on the boat, um, that the city could come up with a list of priorities, call to action, you know, their action plan, exactly what they're going to do once they get the um, pipes fixed. And I think in another couple months, I am going to schedule an appointment with him to kind of pick up on that. Between the construction and between COVID and between the election, I really haven't been in his ear. Um, so I'm in his ear. What I'm trying to accomplish now, and it, 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 it bewilders me. Now, you've been to Fort Lauderdale, and you understand how the neighborhoods work here. The people that live on the water are showing very little outrage. And I wanted to know what you think, besides trying to educate people, because I think people, one, need to be outraged in order to motivate themselves to educate. But how, how would you suggest... I get people's eyes to open up. I'm talking about the people that live on the water, the people that went out this election period and were sporting the piss out of their political flags. So they obviously love the water and they obviously feel like they want to contribute for the good of state, federal and local government. So how do I get their attention? How do I get the motivation that I saw during this election? And get them to concentrate on their own local issue, which is, I don't care what anybody tells you, Peter, Fort Lauderdale is competing with a lot of third worlds, not just with the infrastructure, but with the drain off system and with the amount of pollution that is in our waterways. And what I mean by pollution, I don't mean just sewage. I'm talking about plastics. I'm talking about dead iguanas. I'm talking about diesel. I'm talking about hydraulic fluid. I'm talking about Anything that you could imagine. Fort Lauderdale Intercoastal Waterway. And if anybody doesn't know this yet, we are competing to be one of the most polluted waterway systems that I've ever seen in my entire life. And how do I get the people to see this? Because it's becoming the new norm and people are just living with it. Well, I can say this. There is a transition that occurs here where we have environmental problems or environmental impacts, but at some level, this becomes a human health problem. And as you know, one of the major themes of this year has been the impact of the coronavirus and all of a sudden a large awareness that we're all really connected together in terms of having a respiratory infection and uh, how quickly it can spread across the community, uh, across states, across countries. It's been an amazing lesson for myself, even as a PhD scientist, about how, with the large populations we have, um, are we connected in terms of our, our health? So whether it is um, through atmospheric or respiratory diseases, um, we also have a lot of waterborne diseases and pathogens. So one concerning issue um, I would suggest is this. It's one thing um, you know, for people to be concerned about the health of the fish, the seagrasses, the oysters. But, you know, for many people that like to recreate, it may solely be just water skiing or parking their boat at the sandbar near the inlet and having a few drinks. But at the point when the water is so polluted, that is a human health hazard that is dangerous for you to even put your foot in it, 
that's another layer of pollution. It's another layer of threat. It actually is another um, economic hit to the value of the property of the homeowners along the water. When that water is no longer fit for you to even be around it, uh, then the things that brought you there in the first place are gone. So this right. is the problem that's happening all around Florida is that property values um, decrease when we have fish kills, toxic algal blooms, um, things that really brought us, invited us to these areas are gone and replaced by really uh, devastating and, and problems that become human health problems. So you're telling me that people are going to have to start, get, it has to become a human health problem before we hit rock bottom over here. Huh. Well, let me say this. It, it already is a human health problem. And what I suggest is that, um, you know, beyond monitoring for things like algae and water, the Department of Health routinely has water sampling for fecal indicator bacteria. In fact, my understanding is that uh, the city of Fort Lauderdale has recently hired the Miami Waterkeeper to do additional water sampling for fecal indicator bacteria in the intercoastal waterway around Fort Lauderdale. And here's that why. Is, hold on, uh, let, me, let me stop you there just for a second. And I'm going to take just a second because I want to congratulate the people here in Fort Lauderdale that were concerned about the water because one of the reasons why the Miami Waterkeeper um, got the contract was there's a core group of people here in Fort Lauderdale that are keeping the topic on the table and are demanding some things from our local government. And that was a small win to get um, the Miami Waterkeeper independent nonprofit to do water testing monthly at 10 different locations. And um, I just think it's important. And I want to congratulate everybody that um, helped deliver that message to the city of Fort Lauderdale because we have to celebrate the small wins. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. But very interestingly, I can say this as a scientist, um, getting the monitoring is important because that's, it's kind of the parallel is uh, what we experienced um, a lot of earlier this year when the COVID outbreak happened. And that is we need testing, right? We all like to say we need testing. The question is, what happens when we get the data? What does it mean? So there are two very interesting necessities and values, okay, that, that come out of the testing and what we can get out of it. Number one, we probably need more testing to get a better handle on how bad the fecal indicator bacteria contamination is within the waterways. And I say this because the Florida Department of Health through its Clean Beaches program has a more limited monitoring of these indicator bacteria around the state of Florida. Uh, it isn't everywhere and it's probably not enough. So to have the Miami Waterkeeper come in and have more data um, across the system and, and hopefully more routinely, you'll probably have a better idea about how serious the sewage leaks are and the impact is on the, the coastal water body. So that's number one. Number two is as Fort Lauderdale invests its money and improves its wastewater infrastructure, at some point, I think the hope would be that the Miami Waterkeeper fecal indicator bacteria monitoring will start indicating places where the water is more routinely uh, clean and safe. So right. there are a couple of things here, just summarizing. That monitoring may tell us that the problem is even worse than it is. That's number one. So it'll tell us how severe the problem is. But number two, down the road, it should be a good indicator for hopefully improvement of water quality as we go on. And those are very important things to us as people. Again, if all you want to do is water ski or, or go dip your feet in the water um, down near the inlet, uh, have a drink at the sandbar on the weekend. Uh, that should be important to you because a lot, a lot of the stuff that comes in that wastewater uh, is very dangerous. Uh, right. We have a lot of very uh, dangerous antibiotic-resistant bacteria, uh, staph-type infections that if you get these, uh, we have people up in the Indian Lagoon system that have contacted 
uh, MRSA organisms and have had severe uh, human health impacts resulting from these uh, these sewage-borne or laden uh, bacteria uh, right. that are present in our surface waters. Right. We're seeing that around town here. Um, I know some fishermen that um, – you know, got infected really bad um, from catching bait in the canal systems. I also know some paddle boarders, some actually some really fluent people that lived um, on the aisles here, um, you know, actually got sick um, and infected. So we're seeing that we're seeing that happen here. I just like I look at the people that are paddling around the intercoastal and they still swim at the sandbar. I know damn well that the bacteria levels are way too high. And I just wonder to myself, how many of those people get out of the water, um, get an ear infection or get an infection in their hand or something, and don't put two and two together and understand even how they got it? Because I'm sure there's just loads of cases like that. But um, so we are seeing that um, more often. And sometimes the news will cover some people that get infected like that, which brings me on to the, the, the next thing. And I... I really have had so much um, interaction with the media since the sewage spill. One, because we organized the protest and got a big movement of people to rise up and become a voice. So, yeah, I get we get some media because of that. Um, And then, of course, because of the record sewage spills, we got some media. And we're starting to get some consistent media from the local news. But overall... Um, I watch local news. I I watch the national news and I see how they do the segments and what they put out there, um, as news and very rarely do you see them focus and spend any real time on environmental news. And you would think that us being here in South Florida, where everybody thinks of the water that that type of news would be in depth, almost like the weather, but no, it doesn't happen. If something crazy happens, they'll cover it for 20, 30 seconds, maybe once or twice in a week during that huge oil spill, they were on it for a month or so there, but they've kind of dropped it ever since. Now we have this huge fish kill in Biscayne Bay and an algae bloom that we've never seen before. And the media was on it for about a month and now they're not really talking about it. And I just feel that, Media is a big problem as far as motivating people or getting people educated in what's really happening right behind their own house or right where they vote. Do you feel that the media is irresponsible that way? Well, let me say this. You know, we live in a time where media is diversifying. And I give you a lot of credit utilizing this podcast media outlet to uh, – do more than you're getting from uh, the six o'clock news or the print media. Um, as you pointed out, uh, they're in the business of um, they've got to sell a lot of sponsorship. They've got to have, uh, you know, a lot of attention and eyes on their, their newscast or they, they can't sell advertising. And, and so with that said, um, not being a media expert, obviously, but that affects the depth and the topics that they report. So with that said, I think that you have a great opportunity here, and that is to uh, you know, bring people in that are very concerned and interested about these topics and hopefully bring in uh, people that can be informative and help uh, truly understand at a level that you wouldn't get in normal print media or in a uh, 6 o'clock news uh, short 20-second blip. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. And that's exactly why, Peter, we got you on the podcast today. Um, I got through pretty much all the questions that I wanted to um, talk about. But before I I let you go, was there anything that you thought of that I did not think of that you think it's important for my audience to hear coming from the American Water Security Project or maybe just you personally? Well, I can say this. Um, I think it's very important in this day and age, you know, in terms of our advocacy and our involvement to realize that there are 
no real quick fixes to a lot of these problems. For example, in Fort Lauderdale, it took decades and decades uh, for the problem to become as big as it is. So, you know, we live in a world where we want instant gratification. Um, you know, we have so much at our fingertips. We can order food online. We can get on Amazon and everything we want, uh, you know, is at our doorstep within hours to days. But in our understanding of what we've done as a population to our coastal water systems, this has happened over a lot of time. So I think with that said, and with respect to your topic today, it's very important that we realize that the change that we need to make in our world around us, particularly with dealing with water pollution and stopping uh, nutrient pollution and sewage pollution, is that we've got to do the hard work. We've got to be active in our community. As you've done, you have to forge working relationships with your leaders and tell them that this matters. Tell them that you expect this to get done um, because they have pressure from the other side, and that is the regulators. Uh, the city of Fort Lauderdale is breaking the law every time raw sewage is dumped into your intercoastal waterway. Okay, And the Florida DEP gives the city permits to operate their wastewater treatment facilities, and they have to operate under conditions that are acceptable to the state of Florida. So they can't break the Clean Water Act and the state's domestic wastewater treatment laws. They have to operate under acceptable permitted conditions. And then, by the way, they owe it to you and to us as a community to give us clean water. Okay, Every time they're dumping sewage straight or letting it be dumped into our coastal waters, they're breaking the Clean Water Act. They're breaking federal law, and they're breaking their trust with the community that their job, and they, they know that it's their job to serve the people. They owe you clean air. They owe you clean water. They owe you a safe place to live. All of these things as service people, as servants as to the people and their communities, they owe you. Um, a functioning wastewater treatment system, just as they do owing you a, um, a police force that's going to keep you safe, um, th that's going to keep uh, you informed when we have a hurricane. These are essential public services to keep us safe, keep us healthy, and give us the reason and keep the reason why we all come to places like Fort Lauderdale in the first place, and that is uh, we deserve to have clean water and healthy fisheries and a great place to put our boat in and go enjoy ourselves on the weekend. Awesome, Peter. What a great guest for the Real Guy podcast. I really appreciate um, your time. I really appreciate all the work you guys are doing at the American Water Security Project, obviously. And um, I hope this isn't the last time. I'd love to call on you in the future. Anytime I think that my audience would um, needs a real expert like yourself, I'd like to think that I could call on you. Absolutely, Jeff. I've really appreciated it today. Awesome, Peter. Thank you, and run that dog. Have a good one now. Thank you. <laughs>